Welcome to the I-29 Moo U Dairy Podcast. The I-29 Moo University is a consortium of the land-grant universities located in Minnesota, Iowa, South Dakota, and Nebraska. This podcast covers timely news, information, and research for today's dairy industry. Hi, my name is Jim Salfer, University of Minnesota Regional Dairy Educator, and I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Fred Hall from Iowa State University. Welcome, Fred. Good afternoon, Jim. On today's podcast, we're really excited to be joined by Dr. Mike Swanson or Michael Swanson. He's a Wells Fargo Chief Ag Economist. Welcome, Mike, and you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, yeah. University of Minnesota graduate both for the master's and the PhD. So that's a good place to be from. Yeah. Uh, worked for Land Lakes in the dairy manufacturing side for a few years. And then I've been with Wells Fargo now for um, 24 years coming up here pretty quick, you know, and we finance a lot of dairy and um, dairy manufacturing across the country. Well, Mike, you know, I know there's been some things published recently that you've been quoted in talking about kind of the 2024 economy in general, ag economy. And do you want to look back maybe on where we've come from 2023, some of the highlights and maybe the lowlights, and then tell us a little bit about what you see as you look out to 2024? Well, I'm going to step back even a little bit further. You know, we from 2017 to 2000, early 2020, we were in a 350 corn world and we thought, you know, maybe $8 soybeans was where it's going to top out, you know, and then COVID hit, but that really didn't move the needle per se right away. But it was that Russian Ukraine conflict that really kind of just spiked the market grain wise and inflation wise in a lot of commodities. So 2020 turned out to be a good year, quite a bit of, quite a bit of federal money in there. And then 2021, 2022 and 2023 have turned out to be, well above average years for the farm sector. Now, when I say that, I immediately know that every individual producer is looking at their particular crop or their particular region. But we know that when you have these levels of profitability and return on assets compared to what we've seen for 25 or 30 years over time, it's not going to last. There's just too much competitiveness around there. So as we're looking at 2024, it's kind of like clean up on aisle four. We're going to be dealing with $4 corn, you know, nine, $10 soybeans. And we're going to say, how do we make money in this environment? Can you speak a little bit to dairy? What do you see? Because I was just on a call recently and, you know, the bankers are starting to see cash flows and people coming in and wanting to refinance. I don't know what you're seeing at Wells Fargo, but I'm suspecting 2023 was kind of a tough year. And I know looking out 2024, there's not right now, at least a lot of good prices looking forward. It's a very fair point. You know, so let's ask ourselves, if you had a lot of feed that you were feeding for yourself, that's going to be a really good mitigant of some of that problems we saw in 2023. And also, of course, an opportunity. So, but if you're buying a lot of feed, 2022, 2023 were tough years because we started out with great prices in 2022 and really softened off as we went through 2023. So, this is something that I've seen over the last 24 years at Wells Fargo. Back in the day, in California in particular, it was 40 acres and 4,000 cows. I mean, you just depended upon your local silage growers, you know, to give you the price. And there really wasn't a whole lot of, you know, volatility around it. But we saw a lot of toughness over the last eight, 10 years. And a lot more people have bought more ground and farmed more as a kind of a 
hedging mechanism against that volatility. So how you did in 2023 has probably a lot to do with how much ground you have and how much feed did you produce for yourself. So one pocket or the other pocket. But, you know, it's going to, and we'll, we'll talk about this more, but how quickly does dairy demand really change? And my answer is not that quickly. But what we see is a lot of whipsaw action in how much is in the freezer, how much is in the cooler for cheese and powder and things like that. And the market gets incredibly bullish and then crazy bearish all within the course of 18 months. Yeah, you're right. Fred, I know you had some ideas or you you look at these markets a lot. Do you have any thoughts on, um, or not thoughts or questions or comments on kind of this whole export and value of the dollar? One day's production is exported for dairy. Exports are a big thing. And I, I would, you know, tell me what you think of the the value of the dollar versus our exports. Are we going to see some shifts there? You know, good question. Once again, I'm going to go back in my time machine. When I started in 2000, we were a net neutral dairy producer, importer, export. Today, you know, depending on how you want to run the numbers, maybe 16 to 18% of our total dairy product goes overseas. So you're right. It's a big deal. But when we, we have to ask, who are we shipping to? Primarily Mexico and then China. And then who's our competitors? Primarily the EU and then New Zealand are our two competitors in, in these markets. So when you look at the, at the dollar against the European Union, the euro, it's still quite strong. So to the degree that the Europeans have excess powder, excess export cheese, butter, yeah, they, they have a big advantage. Go back three or four years ago, they're 20% cheaper just on the currency exchange rate. Now, the Chinese rimby, yuan, whatever you want to call it, that's kind of a different beast and runs on a different cycle. But the good news for us in the United States in the dairy sector is we put a lot of product into Mexico. Just a natural fit for us. Growing economy, growing demand right next door. And the peso has actually strengthened. It's come back during the crisis. It was really, really weak. It's really strengthened quite a bit. So it's making that U.S. product look pretty economical versus where it was a couple of years ago. So when we talk about the, the dairy markets, which we should, it's like, who's the competitor and what's happening in their market? And one last point before we walk away from the EU is I don't think the EU really wants to grow a lot of dairy production because they subsidize so much of it. They're in a kind of a tough spot to want to put more money into that system. Um, I spoke there about Thanksgiving or so, and a lot of the discussion was about environmental issues and how their governments, and I don't think this is unique to Hungary, where I was speaking across all of Europe, there's just a lot of pressure to decrease animal units over there. So they were not real optimistic on their future growth, at least. And yeah. we're seeing that flavored through when, you know, they're producing less milk with the exception of maybe one or two of those countries. Uh, they're producing less milk. Uh, in the latest figures, I think the only international group is uh, New Zealand is producing more milk, but even they are producing it differently than what they traditionally have. So, you know, Producing less milk isn't maybe a bad thing if worldwide we're seeing softening consumption, but it's not 
one of those things that you want to see last forever. I guess my question then becomes, how does that fit in the U.S.? You know, it's actually advantageous to us because when the EU steps back, whether it's for environmental reasons or whether it's just their support, financial supports, is we're not going to grow as much or we're, we're happy. That means one less competitor in some of those key markets. Uh, New Zealand kind of only has a, so much they can do. It's a pretty small island, and not all of it's very suitable for agriculture. But I'm going to put throw out a caution here. There's two players in the market that we see over and over again. Russia, surprisingly enough, they have a lot of ground and a lot of grain. And then Brazil. Brazil and, say, you know, Argentina kind of is a block there. And what we see in most of the animal production markets is as we see some of the traditional producers step back, some of the very well-integrated, um, financially astute producers in those other two markets are stepping in when they see the opportunity. So it's not like we just have a runway to ourselves. There are people out there with labor and grain and silage that said, yeah, at that price, I'll produce it. Mike, speaking of that, and I don't know if this is your expertise or not, I know you probably look pretty globally as with the Ukraine war and the Russia war, it looks like that's going to be going on for a little bit. Just in general, how will that affect agriculture over the maybe the next two or three years? Do you have any ideas on that? You know, I think it's pretty straightforward in that we've seen the Ukraine come back and produce a lot more than people expected during the start of the crisis. But their ability to grow is going to be pretty much hampered going forward. Russia, you know, I don't know, I don't know anybody has a really good view into Russia. They seem to be able to do what they need to do, but their statistics can be taken with a grain of salt, so to speak. In the short term, it is, it's definitely a cap on growth in that area, you know, and, but looking out three, five, 10 years, you're buying equipment or putting facilities in, you would expect that they would be chasing good returns if they're out there. That makes sense. You know, as I look at this group we're talking today, we've got a little bit of experience under our belt. And I'm always interested when I hear media tell me, wow, interest is just so high. It's up higher than they remember. Well, if they're 30 years old, that may be true. But, you know, the first tractor I bought, out of high school, I paid 16% interest to own that piece of equipment. So six, 7% probably is, is different in my view. What's inflation going to do with agriculture? You know, ag runs completely separate from inflation. I think we all know that because we're a commodity. We produce commodities. And, you know, farmers get paid by the bushel, not by the acre. And so it's always about, or you get paid by the hundredweight, not by the cow. And so it's always about, can you produce it, you know, at the best price in the market today? And so completely not touched by inflation. Now we get the inputs. I mean, obviously when we talk about labor costs, if you're an employer, if you have a big dairy and you're employing 2,500 people, you know, yeah, you're seeing those wage rates go up and that's driven by inflation. And so there is some of that inflation that leaks into agriculture, but we're a commodity world and commodities go up in a hurry and they come down in a hurry. And the question is, are they trending? And it's interesting, but they do trend up over time. They just do. Everything gets more expensive over time. 
But to your point, if you use the University of Minnesota database, FinBin, which I'm a big advocate of, and you look at the return on assets in agriculture in the upper Midwest, they spike and they collapse. But I don't think they're really trending higher or trending lower. So if you put a million dollars in, over time, it has a pretty predictable return. And the question is, do you like that return? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, how about interest rates from a standpoint, from a Fed policy standpoint? Because there's obviously farmer or agriculture is a very capital intensive business on the farmer side. So, you know, a lot of farms don't have much debt, but there's also a fair number that are pretty highly leveraged. What do you see kind of going forward over the next, well, 2024 and maybe out a little bit farther with Fed policies and interest rates? You know, I, I'm going to step out and say, I think the market's kind of ahead of itself. They're kind of wish casting instead of forecasting what the Fed's going to do. A lot of the of the of investors just like cheap money. Cheap money is a great thing for an investor, right? Because you can do all sorts of crazy stuff with it. But the Fed, I keep telling people this, if I'm the Federal Reserve, do I want to be too soon to cut rates and then have inflation come back and really look foolish and really have trouble? Or do I wait three months, maybe six months longer than you think I should as an investor? You know, and there and there are time horizon, three or six months of waiting to see the data really come out the way it should be, isn't that long. So we have a lot of people, are, if you look at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, look at the, look at a contract they call SOFR, S-O-F-R, stands for Secured Overnight Financing Rate. It's kind of that new benchmark that we borrow to in, in the business world. And if you look at how, how it's trending right now, it is showing interest rates declining pretty noticeably over the next 12 months, you know, into 2025, down almost 200 basis points in some cases, and you're like, could be, I don't know. But I'm going to go back and say, if I'm Jerome Paul, do I want to cut too soon or too late? What's what's my what's my preferred way of being wrong? Yeah, do you have a guess on that? Or what's your thought? I mean, I think a lot of people are a little bit surprised because in 2023, we had a lot of economists kind of predicting a recession. And it seems like employment staying strong. I mean, it's kind of this weird situation where em employment or unemployment is staying really low. Employment's pretty strong. It seems like interest rates or I'm sorry, inflation is sort of trending down. And there's still some people saying, no, we're going to have a we're going to have a recession. Do you have any thoughts? And of course, that's a guess. Right. Um, yeah. But what what are you surprised with how the economy is doing or how do you think the general economy outside of ag will doing? Because that really will affect agriculture. Yes, good question. So let's kind of break it down. Let's start by looking at what happens typically. Since 1998, we've had three recessions. And I always joke they're kind of like hurricanes because we name them. So in 2000, we had the tech bubble burst and we had called had call it a recession for six months. Okay. We lost one and a half percent of our employment over that six months, but we didn't see food spending go down. The next recession was 2008, 2009, the great housing recession, the bank crisis recession. Now, that was a monster recession by anybody's estimates, six quarters long, so a year and a half, 5% contraction in um, payroll, but we still didn't see food spending in the United States go down at all. It went up during that recession. Then we had the COVID recession which I call the great toilet paper scare of 2020, if you remember that one, you know. And we were told it lasted three months. And my joke to the audience is, is I have cottage cheese in my refrigerator that's older than three months right now. So I, it's really, I'm going to make the point, 
we don't see many recessions. We've seen three recessions in, since 1998, so 26 years. So last year, I predicted there'd be no recession because they don't happen very often. Now, we have to really distinguish between recession and soft growth. Growth. We could have a period where businesses are wary and consumers are wary, and instead of growing 2.5%, 2% like we do normally, we only grow 1%. And it seems really, really blasé. People hate it. It's not good for the markets, but it's not a recession. So we, we can't confuse subpar growth with a recession. So first off, never invest based on a recession forecast. They just don't happen very often. And secondly, you know, it's, it's yeah, subpar growth might mean one thing to one person, something else to another person. So it really is interesting. So when you think about the Federal Reserve and the interest rates, there's really probably no reason for them to just to step back and cut interest rates immediately. In fact, I'll make this point. We've gotten so used to cheap interest since the, the, the housing crash and the bank crisis of 2008 that people just aren't used to paying for money. And there's a flip side of this. If interest rates are up and you have cash, some quite a farmers do because they had some good years, CDs are paying a really good rate right now. So why would you go out and buy new farm ground where you get a cash on cash yield of maybe two and a half percent when the local bank is offering you a CD rate of between five and six for that same year? So you have you have a chance to just wait and see what develops. Yeah, I think you're right. It is interesting. As Fred mentioned earlier, you know, our first house loan in the house we're living in was eight and a half percent. And we had to get a five year arm to get that. And so now I talk to my children who are like 20s and they're looking at buying a house. And, you know, it's like, holy cow. And they my son locked in interest rates pretty low. But boy, four percent interest rates. How are we going to play pay that on a house? And I think, boy, that's pretty cheap money when you look. Over decades and decades, so we've been kind of spoiled. You're right. This zero percent Fed's rate is really unusual. Well, I'm going to play volleyball with that one just for a second because it's not a free ride. Because we saw the house prices get so inflated by the cheap interest. So now, when you go out to buy a yeah. house as, as a young person, you're like, "What? Really? Yeah. That much for that house? That doesn't seem very fair." But when it was three and a quarter percent money, it was easy to cash flow. We have not seen the housing prices really come down at all. And so it, it is most, my joke is most people don't buy a house, they rent it from the bank. So, yeah, you're exactly right about that. So, shifting gears a little bit, you know, we've got lots of challenges in Washington with um, politics. And I won't get into that, other than that, really does affect the farm bill. And, you know, I know farms are kind of anxious, wondering what will be in the next farm bill. Do you have any idea on timelines or do you follow enough to know is there is there going to be more money for the farm bill or what's kind of the political environment now moving forward with the farm bill? It's going to be delayed. Nobody wants to appear weak by compromising on anything between the divided side of the house there. So it, it'll be delayed. But what we should anticipate is a couple of things. One is if there's more money, it's probably going to be put into new environmental programs. At the moment, that's really where the growth seems to be. Traditional programs, LDP, you know, disaster payments, they're still there, but they've almost been inflated out of importance. I mean, we have the same dollars that we did 25 years ago for the most part. And so they just don't have the same impact when you look at the day's farm economy. The one nice 
key element is crop insurance. Crop insurance and livestock insurance are two very well-respected components there. They kind of run on their own thing. So <clears throat> I'm going to say, if we have to be grateful for something in the political situation we're in right now, it's both crop and livestock insurance seem to be bipartisan support and don't see a lot of funding challenges. Nothing is by without getting challenged. But for the most part, it's not one of those things flying a red flag. Fred, do you have any comments? Well, I'm going to kind of move out of what our conversations been. You know, I'm always the guy who says, what's your cash position? You know, right now, you commented that, you know, we've had a couple years where we've made some money. But I still say, let's watch our cash position. Am I being too cautious? Or is now the time to, to get some new steel or new cement? You know, it, it's a fair comment and a fair challenge. And I'm going to say this. We know, and you know it because you look at um, farmers' returns. We look at it because we bank them. There's a big gap between strong performer and weaker performer, always. You know, it's it's the milking efficiency, the feed efficiency, it's the labor efficiency. They all get basically the same price per hundred weight, but they don't all have the same cost of production. So some of the producers really are kind of tight on cash and really don't have any options. But there's others, to your point, that are in a very strong financial position because of all the things they've done historically to be ready for it. Is, is it time to make an investment? I think that's really an individual situation. Do you have the right personnel to want to milk more cows if you're going to do that? Do you have a strategic vision for where you're going to take the milk? Do you have a partner that wants to receive the milk? I mean, I think there's almost no time where somebody can't say, I can expand because they have the right green lights in front of them. And other people never seem to expand because there never seem to be any green lights. And that might might be a more of a question about, well, how are you doing as an operator than how is the market behaving? I mean, one of the challenges we have in dairy, Mike, it's funny that you had worked for Land Lakes in dairy manufacturing. I would suspect in those days, your plants weren't full. You were probably out looking for milk. And now it seems I just got a text message from a farmer I work with, and he's trying to look around to find a home for some milk. And he said, boy, every creamery is just not taking milk. Do you have any insight on when that might change or how that might change and where we maybe sit in the whole upper Midwest from a, a, from a future of processing capacity? Or don't you work enough in that area? No, we see that. And, you know, let's, and let's be honest, California doesn't want to grow more dairy. I mean, I'll be out in California next week. Between the water and the labor, it's not a, a huge growth. They're not going to shrink and disappear anytime soon. But we've seen and we know where they went. They went to Idaho. They went to so eastern South Dakota. They went to Michigan. I mean, they went to parts of Iowa. Why? Because they had water. They had land. They had better feed costs. But it takes a while to get the... <laughs> capacity, the transformation capacity lined up with that milk capacity. And we've seen Michigan as a good case where we saw a lot of people show up, build a lot of farms and dairies, and a lot of processing went in and they filled it up in a hurry because it made sense. But let's circle back to what we said earlier. The United States has about, let's just say 0.7 to 0.8% population growth. That's kind of where we're at 
We don't know really what immigration is doing to that because we have undocumented immigration. We have documented immigration. There's some things going on here. But the American consumer is pretty well supplied with dairy. So when the milk supply wants to grow at one and a half or two percent on a running basis, it's going to have to go to the global market. It just has to because we're not going to, we're not going to have enough here for it. And so it's not just how much milk and where it goes is what format is it going to be powder. Is it going to be cheese? Uh, wh who wants it and what format? So it's a complicated puzzle to say the least. Just because you have milk in the tank at the farm level doesn't mean that there's a clear destination for it somewhere else in a format that somebody's willing to pay for. Yeah, I think that's always a challenge. I talked to some co-op board members and they said, well, sure, we could expand processing capacity, but we need a belly ultimately somewhere in the world that's going to consume that. We need to be able to sure, make sure we can get rid of that milk. I think that's what you're saying, Mike. Absolutely. You know, one other thing that I would suspect uh, your lenders or you are getting question on is this whole carbon market piece. It seems like every ag publication now talks about the carbon market. Can you give listeners any insight on how they should be thinking about this whole carbon market, whether they're a crop producer or a livestock producer? Yeah, uh, I'll be honest. It's the, the old saying, you know, no good deed goes unpunished. Is something you should write down on your on your yellow pad at the moment, because the market hasn't really said what they want to pay for carbon on a go forward basis because they don't have a clear way to get it to the consumer and get it paid for on a consistent basis either. And so if you make improvements today around your carbon footprint, it's only going to count against you in the future. It's really kind of a, a self-defeating approach that they've given us. But. When they actually say, here's your baseline, here's the improvement, here's what we'll pay for it, I know dairy operators, crop farmers, livestock operators will respond to the incentive and they will do it well. But to do it ahead of time, you just set the bar higher and that's going to become a new baseline. And they're going to say, well, you should improve from there. And you're like, wait a minute, I, I've made substantial improvements, pay me for these. And they're going to make, no, 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 you did those on your own. So what we're seeing and this is my advice, being a cynical ag economist, is get it in writing, get a price for it, do the pencil work, but don't give it to them for free. They'll take everything for free, but make them tell you what they think it's worth. Yeah, I think you make a good point. It's been a frustration of some farms because they, you know, some farms that have implemented good practices, I'll say, in the past. Now that's sort of their new base, as you mentioned. And so now they've got to improve from that base. And so that makes it a little bit harder. It's sometimes a little bit like getting cost share for manure pits or anything like that. And I, I don't know if I have the right answer, but it, it sure frustrates people that are out there doing the right thing and trying to do what they can, that they they can't get incentivized for practices that they've already done. At least at this point, that's what it seems like we're at going no, forward. And we've seen this before in, in Southern California, Arizona, if you made early investments in irrigation efficiency and you reduced your water pool, well, they just took that water out of your allotment, you know, and your neighbor across the street who had terrible practices, he still had his full allotment. And you're like, okay, uh, I guess that's how the rules are. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of an interesting system that we have across a lot of different areas. So, Fred, do you have any last comments before we or questions before we kind of wrap up here? Well, we covered a, a lot of territory here. But, Mike, 
boil it down, what should producers be looking for right now? You know, there's no new key to success. I'm just going to put it out there. But I'm going to go back to a point I made earlier is that we see very substantial differences in profitability in the same market. And, you know, it's because feed efficiency, calving efficiency, labor efficiency, you know, just a laundry list of things that matter. And it's not that you somebody does it just incredibly better than somebody else, but they do, they do it better. And if they do enough of those things better, it makes a significant impact. And so just be open to continuous improvement. Be open to hearing from somebody about possibilities of doing it differently. Because the thing that really leads to an exit is sticking with something for too long. When you get some criticism about your financial results, if your first inclination is to say the milk prices are too low, it's understandable, but it's not helpful. Okay, that sounds good. Well, thanks for all your insight there, Mike. And so we appreciate all your time. Well, thanks for your time, Mike. And uh, thanks for listening to our You Move podcast. And make sure you check the episode notes to see if there's any additional links or information from our sponsors. Thanks, everybody. We'd like to thank our annual sponsors, including our gold sponsor, Iowa Corn Growers Association. Please visit their website at iowacorn.org. We'd also like to thank our silver sponsors, Pioneer, Connor Agri-Service, Diamond V, and Central Vet Clinic. I-29 Moo University is an equal opportunity educator. For the full discrimination statement, visit extension.iastate.edu forward slash diversity forward slash ext.